39. So I'm, one, I'm just going to read the first six verses. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down, and you are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I am just so grateful to you for um, all that you are to us, Lord. Thank you, God, for your love for us and how that love has been demonstrated through the cross of Jesus Christ. And God, I pray that you would just... Um, Strengthen and lift our hearts this morning in the knowledge of your devotion and your commitment to us, and that it is unwavering, it will never change, that you truly will never leave us or forsake us. Thank you, God, that we are hidden in Christ, and that nothing will ever separate us from your love. So just speak to us, God, and, and as I said, just strengthen our hearts and minister to us in accordance with your word. In Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we finished up um, Habakkuk, three Sundays, four Sundays there in Habakkuk, and, um, and it, I only have two Sundays with you before I'm gone for a couple weeks. Torchbearers is having a big um, meeting again, this, this time in Sweden, and so Patsy and I will be gone for a couple Sundays with that. Bill Bushhouse is going to be preaching for me and, and Clay Patrick. And so I didn't want to start another long series, only having two Sundays, and, it's, and um, it's, it's, it was in my heart this week, Patsy and I went to a conference up in Dallas, kind of a theology conference, and, and, um, and there's a lot of different things that were good and that you know, caused us to really think, and there was one session in particular um, that I appreciated on pleasing God, and, but I felt like um, it'd be worth looking at that, but to... I realize you can't really talk about pleasing God until first you talk about the love of God. And this Psalm 139 never mentions um, per se God's love, um, but it is all about His love for us. Just like the book of Esther never mentions God's sovereignty, but you can't read the book of Esther and not see that God's in control. And, and this is really a go-to psalm for um, seeing um, how much God loves each of us individually. And so I already shared some of, some of these thoughts um, with our summer staff this week, but I wanted to go into a little more um, detail with it. And, um, and, I, and it's just amazing here, this, this um, short chapter and all that it says about the Lord and His heart for His people. So in these first verses here, the first six verses, it's, it's neatly divided into four sections here. And many people have observed that the first section, the first six verses, um, theologically talk about the omniscience of God. Then the next six verses, 7 to 12, the omnipresence of God. And then 13 to 18, the omnipotence of God. But this is not just a heavy theological um, passage. It is very, very practical. O oh Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. 
One of the basic things for, for love for each of us is there's fear in all of our hearts and, and we do our best and we are all experts at putting the best foot forward, making sure people don't really know us for what we are. We don't even want to see ourselves for how we really are, much less anybody else to know us because there's always that fear of rejection. If somebody really knows me, then they will leave me. They won't want to be my friend any longer. Um, you know, how many times marriages have ended because we felt like that the person that we have been living with for the last few years is not the person we knew when we got married? Well, we just didn't know them when we got married. Um, and, and nobody will fully know another person before they get married. As well as you may think you know each other, you're in for a surprise after you get married. Patsy and I knew each other, I thought, very well. We knew each other eight years before we got married, worked in summer camp for, I think, five years together, and you get to know each other really well working in a camp together. But I'm telling you, after 30-some-odd years of marriage, we are still getting to know each other. And, but with the Lord, there are no surprises. He knows us better than we know ourselves. There are no mysteries and so we look at each other and go, mystery, complicated. Who can figure this person out? God says, simple. I know everything about every person. You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. He's talking about here our activities. God knows every minute of every day. We have trackers now on everybody's phones. I don't, I'm, you know, I, I think my kids are probably tracking me. I don't know how to track them. But, you know, they, and Michael will say, Dad, what were you doing today? I was over, you know, at the rim. And I go, how do you know I was at the rim? Or whatever. He goes, well, I've got this thing on the phone. I know where you're going all the time. And I just go, man. And, but, but this, so we're catching up with God. God knows Every time we sit down, every time we rise up. Apparently there's apps on your phone that even tell you how you're sleeping. Every time you turn over, every time you move, this app is watching you. And the next morning you can look at it and see how restful you were or how restless you were. They're not even starting to catch up with God. God knows every time we sit down, every time we rise up, you understand my thought from afar. You understand what I'm thinking. That's amazing. You scrutinize my path and my lying down, and you are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Not just an academic knowledge. He is personally acquainted with everything about us. Even so far that before there is a word on our tongue, the Lord knows before we even speak it. That's amazing. And this is why, like with Habakkuk, and we saw, you know, he was just kind of mad at God in that first chapter. And God, why? God, how long? And I made the point, go ahead and tell God how you're feeling. He already knows what you're thinking. And you're not going to shock him by anything you have to say to him. Before you ever speak a word, God knows. God knows what that word will be. Behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before. You've surrounded me. Your presence is all-encompassing. You have laid your hand on me. You are not distant from God. God's hand is on you. You are surrounded by him, 
and he knows every single thing about you. That should not scare us. That should comfort us. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is a wonder that I cannot comprehend. It is too high for me. I cannot attain to it. But see, if you knew me that way, I'd be afraid that you would reject me. God knows us absolutely. Every thought, every action, every motive of the heart. And he is not put off. Now he starts with the presence of God in verse 7. Where can I go from your presence? From, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. You cannot escape his presence. You might want to. And sometimes we'd like to think that God isn't watching, that God isn't near. Sometimes we just want to run away from everything, including God. And God says, can't happen. You can never escape me. And it's not just because he's theologically omnipresent. He is. But this is speaking about his heart for us. He will not leave us or forsake us. Even if he could, he wouldn't. Absolutely committed to us. See, this, this is why marriage is always pictured in Scripture as a covenant relationship, where you covenant with another person. So you're, you're not in a covenant relationship with your children if you have children. There's only one person you're in a covenant relationship with, and that is your spouse. And this is why it is, it is so difficult to cope with, to handle, when a covenant relationship breaks, because that is the most permanent relationship you have. It's even more permanent than the relationship you have with your children. And God's covenant relationship with us means that we can never escape that relationship. We can never move away from him. We can never see this relationship destroyed. Wherever you run to, God is there. You cannot run away from him as much as you might want to. Verse 10, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. Presence, intimacy, friendship. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Times can be so dark for us that we have no idea what we should do. We don't know whether to turn right or turn left. We are clueless. But darkness is no problem for God. He knows no such thing. Darkness and light are alike to him. There's never a time when he doesn't know what to do. Never a time where he can't lead us. 
He sees in the darkness. So no matter the depth of depression, no matter the depth of, of, of just uncertainty, God is not confused. And he is the one who takes us by the hand and leads us, present with us. And it will never, ever change. Our God knows us, and he is present with us. At this conference we were at, one of the speakers was just hilarious, and um, he said that he and his wife were sitting in a little sidewalk cafe, I think it was in Italy, just watching people go by as they had their little meal, drank their coffee, and, and his wife just says, you know, there are a lot of bald men in this country. And, and he said, you know, my wife never, is never critical, and, just, and that was one of the most negative things I've ever heard her say. And, and so it, he was surprised, and so he said, well, sweetheart, I'm going bald. Because, you know, he said, I've got this little, you know, I'm thinning back here, I'm going bald, and I know my wife knows that, and she was just critical of all these men who are, who are you know, young men that are going bald. And she said, yeah, but you're sexy. <laughs> and, and so he sat back, and he goes, well, well, thank you. <laughs> and she, go, she goes, why are you thanking me? And he said, well, because you, you said I was sexy. And she goes, I didn't say you were sexy. I said you were 60. <laughs> and so he's been sufficiently deflated. And she made it worse. And then she, she laughed and she goes, why would you think I would say sexy? <laughs> Now, I need hearing aids. And so Patsy and I are having more of these moments like this. <laughs> so I could fully relate to what that guy was saying. You think you've said one thing. You think she said something. And, and, and you don't even begin to communicate. We're having more communication issues after 33 years of marriage than we had in our first year of marriage. And I'm going, it's not supposed to be that way. And it isn't that way with the Lord. He understands what you mean. He understands what's on your heart. And it doesn't push him away. Amazing. We cannot do anything to separate ourselves from the loving presence of God. And then he speaks. So the first six verses, the Lord knows you. The next six verses... The Lord is with you. And now, verses 13 to 18, the Lord has made you, and he values you. For you formed my inward parts. You weaved me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. There is no person on this planet that cannot look in a mirror and say, I am the work of God. And God's works are wonderful. God doesn't make mistakes. God doesn't make trash. Now, we all know there are people that are born with all kinds of physical problems. 
And that is a consequence of sin. God didn't create spina bifida. And you can go on down the list. Those things came into the world because of sin. But on the other side, there is nobody, even without those extreme birth defects, that is born perfectly. All of us are born with flaws that are the cause of sin. None of us are going to be as strong and healthy as God intended us to be. That is a fact. Every child, even if they score a 10 on the Epgar test, they are not what God intended them to be. They are the creation of God. Make no mistake about it. They are a wonder because they are the work of God. But sin has impacted every one of us. So it is nonsense to say that one child is worth more or less than another based upon whether or not they have greater or fewer limitations than another person. Every person is limited in comparison to what God intended for mankind to be if sin had not entered into the world. All of us. None of us are functioning at the full capacity that we would if it were not because of sin, if there were no sin impacting us. Every person, every person, even though sin impacts every person, every person has been made by God. We like to joke and say, you know, you see kids that are, you know, two years apart, two years, two, you know, 20 years old, 18 year old, 16 year old, 14 year old, and then two. And you go, what happened? <laughs> well, <laughs> that one wasn't planned. Oops. Oops, right, you know, that one wasn't planned. That was a surprise. No surprises with God. No unplanned pregnancies with God. Every single person has been formed by God. Every single person is fearfully and wonderfully made. No exceptions here. And again, it speaks to his love. It speaks to his, his commitment to us. I am no doctor. I think if I were a medical doctor, I don't know how I could even... How you can not be a Christian and deal with the, with the miracle of the human body on a daily basis. It's amazing. So I, I just Googled a few things on, on, the, on the marvels of the human body, and there's, I mean, there are pages and pages, I mean, volumes of stuff that comes up. Here's just a few things. The brain. Your brain can store two and a half million gigabytes of data and process information much faster than the fastest supercomputer ever made. The number of synapses and cells in our brains has been compared to the numbers of stars in the universe. There are 400 billion synaptic junctions in a gram of brain tissue. And the average brain weighs three pounds. In one gram of brain tissue, 400 billion synaptic junctions. More synapses and brain cells than all the stars of all the universe. And three pounds of brain matter. That's amazing. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. 
the length of blood vessels in our body would cover 60,000 miles. The circumference of the earth is only 25,000 miles. And you have 60,000 miles of blood vessels running through your body. Some of you have a lot more than that because you're so big, you're Philistines. <laughs> the acid in your stomach is strong enough to melt a razor blade. But have you ever seen how fragile and flimsy stomach lining is? The stomach lining is not destroyed. Apparently, every three days, the stomach lining is made new. Every three days, you have a new stomach lining. Every seven years, you have a completely new skeletal structure. Your bones are completely remade every seven years. Your stomach lining every three days because of the stomach acid and how powerful it is. Your eye can detect 10 million different colors. If you're a woman, it's about 100 million. <laughs> Your nose can recognize 50,000 different scents. 50,000 different scents. It could just go on and on. How you cannot pick any one part of your body and say, well, that's, that's easy to understand. Every single facet of our beings is beyond comprehension in its complexity. And there's one, only one explanation. God did it. Even your, our bones are so strong that if you were to put this, the, the amount of steel, if you were to put the corresponding steel by its strength to correspond with the bones, a 160-pound man would weigh 800 pounds. That's how strong our bones are. If you had steel in your body instead of bones, a 160-pound man would weigh 800 pounds. I haven't even talked about the ear or the hand. Do you know that you have virtually no muscles in your hand? And yet the hand has strength. God put the muscles for your fingers in your arm, in your forearm. If he'd put those muscles in your fingers, everybody's fingers would look like sausages. <laughs> and you wouldn't be able to pick up anything. You couldn't pick up, I mean, you can't pick up a pen, you can't pick up coins, because you've got these big, thick sausages. <laughs> so God, he gives you... Fingers that have dexterity, that are nimble, that you can pick up the tiniest things, and yet have strength, because he put the muscles not in the fingers, but in the forearm. And so those muscles are tied to the fingers through tendons that God's created. You can just go on and on. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Beethoven created his ninth symphony, and the first time that he performed it, the audience stood and, and broke into frantic applause. Beethoven couldn't hear their applause. He couldn't even hear his ninth symphony because he was totally deaf. The brain has the capacity even to imagine sound 
that it has never heard. It's incredible. We are fearfully and wonderfully made by God. Every single person. Rightly, whenever we talk about abortion, think about whether it is right or wrong, this is the passage, one of the passages we should go to. One of the primary passages. It should settle that question once and for all. This doesn't say that you become a child of God or you become a human being or you become a person of value when you are born. This is talking about from the moment of conception. So it says, you form my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to thee for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth, speaking about the mother's womb. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and, your, and in your book they were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Totally planned by God. See, there's no unplanned pregnancy as far as God is concerned. Not only did God plan the pregnancy, God planned every single day. The numbers have all been, or of the days have all been ordained by God. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, if I should count your thoughts toward me, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. It's like God, you ever watched a baby sleep? You know, when you're a new parent and you've got that baby, you know, I mean, you just, you just love just watching the baby sleep. And sometimes you wish it slept more, but you just, you just love just standing over the crib and watching that baby sleep. God, it's like he's, he's watching us even as we sleep and waiting for us to wake up so that we can go back into that fellowship with him. When I awake, I am still with you. Your thoughts toward me outnumber the sand on the beach. That's a lot of sand. And you think, how can God do that? There are, what, seven and a half billion people on the face of this earth? Every one of them has been made by God. And in every one of them, God is fixated on. It's like God has the capacity, and I don't have any theological problem with this. I mean, if he can do what he's done in creating our body so wonderfully and fearfully made, I have no theological problem with thinking that God can think of me without being distracted about anybody else. That he can focus his mind individually on seven and a half billion people at the same time. That's what he says he's doing. There's never a time when God forgets you. Never a time when he grows bored of you. Never a time when he says, man, can we just turn the channel and watch something else for a while? Because he already knows everything you're going to say, everything you're going to think, everything you're going to do. And, he, and you go, that's a rerun. I mean, if you know it all, right? And God's going, and still, his one thought 
is you, me. See, that speaks of love. Love's not said, but obviously that speaks of love. When a woman's in love with a man or a man in love with a woman, and, you, and, they're, and you're, they're dazing off, you go, what are you thinking about? Well, that's easy. You know what they're thinking about. And they're thinking about the next time they'll be together. They're thinking about what it was like the last time they were together. Their one thought is the one that they love. And that's the way it is with us. God knows you. The first six verses, that is acceptance. God is with you. That is presence. God has made you and values you. He has formed you and designed you. And he is fixated on you and devoted to you. That is worth and value. Made you, designed you, fixated on you, devoted to you. Worth and value. There is no performance basis for this. He doesn't have this kind of heart for us because of what we have done. It's irrespective of what we have done. He loves us this way, is this devoted, this fixated, because of who he is Amen. and because of what we are, because we have been made by God. We are his wonderful creation, made by a wonderful God. And I thank the Lord. I mean, it's, if there's one thing that we each have trouble with, it is, it is grasping the idea that this relationship with God is in no way performance-based. No way. We put each other on a performance basis all the time. It's human nature. There is no performance basis in God's love for us. None. He loves us unconditionally. He loves us because of who he is. And now this last part. It almost seems like it ought to be a separate psalm at first reading. Because it's just been so great. Man, Lord, the Lord, he's, he's, he knows us. The Lord, he is with us. The Lord, he made us and he values us. And now, oh God, that you would slay the wicked. What? Where did that come from? Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly. And your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. But what is he saying? God loves me. And I love God. And when you love somebody, you cannot help but hate those who hate the one you love. God loves me. God is devoted to me. God is fixated on me. And when I hear people take my God's name in vain, something in me gets angry. And that's the way it should be. I have a brother that just ran for office, as all of you know. We haven't been on the best terms. But I love my brother. And when his counterpart 
was saying things that were lies about my brother, I was mad. <laughs> I was really mad. And this is my brother that I can't always get along with. But I love him. And it makes me mad when I hear somebody lie about him. And when you know the love of God, see, the scripture says we love because we were first loved. And when you know the love of God and you know you are unworthy of God's love, as Jesus said, it makes us love him all the more. When you realize your unworthiness, when you realize how much you've been forgiven, who loves God more, Jesus said, the one who's been forgiven more. And you go, man, and somebody speaks against my God who loves me and whom I love makes me angry, and it should. So I don't think there's any reason to apologize for that. It's right. It's good. It is that jealousy that is a godly jealous. Godly jealousy. God is jealous for those whom he loves. And I believe he would have us to be jealous for the name of God. And then he concludes with something very personal. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Remember how he started this song. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. And now he comes back to that. Search me. Oh, God, and know me. Know my heart. Try me. Examine me. And know my anxious thoughts. And he admits, humbly, that he isn't perfect. And he knows that the God who knows him intimately, knows everything about him, knows that he isn't perfect. But he also trusts that the one who knows him so well, that when he searches and examines, it's not to condemn him. It's to bring him into greater conformity to himself. So, Lord, it's okay for you to know everything about me. Because I know you're not going to reject me. I know you're not going to run from me. I know you're not going to beat me up. I know you're not going to condemn me when you find out what's in me. I know, God that you will bring me into greater conformity to yourself if I will acknowledge the lack of conformity, the incongruity. Search me, God. Know my anxious thoughts because they are there. See if there be any hurtful way in me. So this is my thought on hurtful way. It sounded pretty hurtful when he said, I hate them with the utmost hatred. That's pretty hurtful. I don't think so. See, I don't think the hurtful thought that David has in mind here is that thought. I think the hurtful thoughts, the hurtful way, is what hurts the heart of God. Whatever is in me, God, that when you look at it, it hurts your heart because it is contradictory to who you are. It's not like you. It's not consistent with you. Lord, search it out. And lead me in the everlasting way. 
Because the everlasting way is God's way. And the hurtful way is not God's way. So God, look at what's in me that's not true of you. And lead me in the way that is true of you. What in me is not congruent, consistent, in harmony with God? See, God loves us perfectly. God loves us unconditionally. But David understands at the end of this psalm, that doesn't mean he is pleased with everything he sees in me. He's not surprised by anything, but that doesn't mean he likes everything he sees. And there are things in each of our hearts that God wants removed that are not yet true to him, that are not in harmony with who he is. God will always be God and we will always be men, people. He lives in us to express himself through us. Amen and hallelujah. But even when he is fully expressed in each one of us, we will still just be men and he will be God. So he's not saying that we become gods, as the Mormons would say. But he does want our lives and his life to be in perfect harmony. I'm not a musician, just like I'm not a scientist or a doctor, but I can appreciate it. And even I can hear notes that are not in harmony. Some notes just seem to go together, and other notes clash. And God wants every single thing in our being to be in harmony with him. And that's where David's saying, I want not only to be loved by you, but I want to be pleasing to you. And doesn't every marriage want the same? I don't want to just know that my wife loves me. I want to be pleasing to my wife. I don't want to just know that God loves me. I want to be pleasing to him. And David's saying, search me, God. Find those ways in me that are not true to you, that are hurtful to your heart, that are not pleasing to you, and lead me in the everlasting way. He doesn't think that he can fix himself. He looks to God who made him to fix him, who designed him to correct him. And that's what we each have to do. Pleasing God ultimately is also going to have to be the work of God, even as being made was the work of God and being brought into conformity to Christ ultimately will be the work of Christ. He loves us unconditionally. He delights in us completely, but he isn't pleased with everything that we do and say. We are not yet totally conformed to his likeness. And therefore, we have as our ambition to be pleasing to him. The Lord knows you. The Lord is with you. The Lord has made you and values you. How much does he value you? He gave his son to die for you. And if you want to live 
and truly know the love of God, you can only know it by accepting the love of God that was displayed for you in Jesus Christ giving himself for you on the cross. It's not enough just to say, well, God loves everybody because God is love. You personally cannot know the love of God unless your sin is removed and paid for in Christ and you place your faith in him and then you can begin to experience and know what is eternally true, that God loves you. He doesn't begin to love you when you place your faith in Christ. But you can't know his love. It's like you can't know his peace until first you place your faith in Christ and simply say, God, if this is true, I want to know it. I want to know that your knowledge of me is a good thing. I want to know that your presence with me is not something to fear, but something that comforts me. As David said in Psalm 23, thy presence comforts me. I want to know that, that I have truly been made by you and you have not made a mistake, that I can look in a mirror and say, thank you, God, for making me. I am a wonder. I am a miracle. And you can also say, because you are sure of the love of God, and you do not have to fear him condemning you, you can truly say from your heart, search me, O God, and see if there be anything in me that is contrary to yourself, and lead me in the everlasting way. I'll close this in prayer. I thank you, God, for giving us this psalm, for revealing so much of your heart and your ways for us. I pray, God, that by your Spirit you would remind us of these things and that our hearts would be ruled and governed by the truth and set free, God, by that truth to live in the love of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And I thank you, God, that your love for us will never fail. I thank you that it is not in the least dependent upon our performance. It is truly unconditional. And it is eternal. Everlasting. And Father, I pray that you would find open hearts in each of us that would, from the depth of our being and all sincerity, say, oh God, search us and root out of us, God, any things, any of those things, word, actions, thoughts, motives, that are not true of you. Lead us, O oh God, in the everlasting way. In Jesus' name, amen.